to take a seat, unless you prefer to stand up. Howdy, howdy do, how do you do, partners? Someone on the survey said that they wanted me to wear a cowboy hat when I preach. That's as close as you're going to get. <laughs> That's as close as you're going to get. My name is Roger. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest, extra special welcome to you. Now, this morning, we're going to start a two-week reflection on the resurrection, not the events surrounding it, not the historical basis for it, but rather, those are important topics, but those aren't our topics. Rather, our aim is to think about how the resurrection of Jesus applies to our lives here and now. In the church calendar, some of you may know this, we're presently in the season of ordinary time. Ordinary time is sometimes known as kingdom time, and if anything, it is extraordinary. Don't get the wrong impression about it. Ordinary time is about welcoming Christ's authority and vision into every area of our lives. It's about being transformed totally by grace, which is why author Marilyn Robinson says that ordinary time equals changing time. The reality of the resurrection is meant to change so many aspects of our lives, the way we live. Now, how the, how the resurrection applies to our lives at present is not always straightforward. Uh, if you're somewhat familiar with the resurrection of Christ and you're, you're kind of like me, you might tend to think of it either in past terms or in futurist terms. So the resurrection is a past event. The empty tomb, Christ rose from the grave. Or the resurrection is a future thing that's going to happen. The mysterious power of God's going to raise the dead from the grave. You read about that in 1 Thessalonians 4. We talked about it the other week. But if we stop there, we're left with an insufficient account of the New Testament's teaching about the resurrection of Christ. You see, the resurrection of Christ is not just a past event. It's not just a future event. It's also a present reality. We are raised with Christ. That's how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3. So let's look at a few verses from that very chapter, verses 1 through 4. Read along if you've got a Bible. This is Paul writing, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. See, for St. Paul, more than just being a past event or a future promise, the resurrection means that God's life has come into us now. That's a major theme of his writings. And according to the New Testament, that is the foundation for Christian existence. It's the foundation for Christian moral life. One scholar calls it the resurrection and the new moral order. Truthful human living, according to the Scriptures, involves participating in Jesus' resurrection, having that life inside of you and living out of it. That's what Paul's saying here. In other words, Christians are people who have come up from a surgery table. We've been through an operation. We've had some transplants. There are new organs within us, new bone marrow, a new heart. There is new life inside of us. And that becomes the basis for our existence going forward. We have been made alive in a new way. We have been raised with Christ. That is the mind-blowing memo of Colossians chapter 3. <laughs> Now, I have to confess that I have not always understood that. I've certainly not always practiced it, but I want to understand it more. And I want you to as well. There's something in all of this that we need to perceive. Christ's death and resurrection are not just about forgiving human guilt. Most of you, if you know anything about the New Testament, will know that, forgiving human guilt. It's not just about healing human shame either. It's no less than those things, but it is much more, according to Colossians chapter 3 at least. The resurrection of Christ is about restoring our mode of life, restoring it to what God intended it to be in the beginning, 
when he created us, the time of creation. You see, when God created the world and humanity, we're part of the world, everything was initially stunning. Without stain, there was harmony. Creation was poised to, to, to grow and blossom into even more radiance. You can take it for granted that God is very loyal to beauty. But then God's first dream for the world was disrupted. The foundation was compromised. And that wasn't God's doing. That was the result of humanity's handiwork. You can read about that at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Yet God did not just wash his hands of us. Rather, like a good stonemason, he came in to repair the cracked foundation. And when he did that, he wore the face of Jesus of Nazareth. And now, through Jesus Christ, God's dream for humanity and for this world is being reclaimed. And that means that Christian life, and I'm sorry if you've never heard this before, Christian life is not simply about the forgiveness of sin and the healing of shame. It is about living on the renewed foundation. It's about letting God use you to help actualize his original dream for this world. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, not only are you dying to yourself in his death, you are also being raised to new life right now. Because he lives, we will live. By the power of his spirit, his life is pressing out into the world through the lives of his people. There's been a transplant. We carry his life inside of us, and just like water is always going to flow down a hill, so too is that life just got to flow right out of us. Can't not happen. That's how we are to understand ourselves. Do you? Will you consider this if you haven't? As we move on this morning, I want to connect the reality of being raised with Christ to our use of time, and in particular, our time at work. The average person spends about a third of their time of their life at work. That's about 90,000 hours. It's enormous. Annie Dillard, a writer, recognized this when she said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. So thinking about time, how we use our time, work is a very good place to land. And as we explore the relationship between our faith and our work, we're going to enter into a conversation with Romans chapter 13. And along the way, I'm going to share some insights that I gleaned from a few conferences I've attended. Conferences in New York City at Redeemer Church on faith and work. Now, with, a, with reference to Romans 13, I want to suggest to you uh, that what Paul says here actually informs a Christian perspective on work. And more specifically, this passage of Scripture helps us to see that being raised with Christ inevitably redefines the passion and the purpose that are bound up with our time at work. Being raised with Christ redefines the passion and the purpose bound up with our time at work. And those are really just two sides of the same coin. Passion refers to what's inside of us, and purpose refers to how it takes expression externally. And the resurrection shapes both of those. So once again, let's give our attention to God's Word. This time, Romans chapter 13, we'll begin with verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shouldn't murder, you shall not steal, you shouldn't covet. And any other commandment, they're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Now this chapter, Romans 13, the bulk of this chapter is about how Christians engage with the wider world. It's got an outward orientation. The first seven verses, we didn't read those, but the first seven verses talk about how Christians relate to the GOVT, the government, CRA, verse 6. Paul basically says, obey the law. Be good citizens. Pay your taxes. Owe no one anything. The beginning of verse 8. 
But then there's a shift, second part of verse 8, all the way to verse 10. He starts talking about how Christians relate to our neighbors, which includes our colleagues. That's a big part of how we use our time. You see, when it comes to neighbor love, there is not a measurable debt to settle like there is with your tax liability. We don't have a quota. This bill cannot be fully paid. Now, what does neighbor love entail? That's verse 9 and 10. Good neighbor love, says Paul, lines up with the law of God in the Old Testament, and he gives them representative examples. Don't cheat. Don't murder. Don't deprive people of life. Don't steal. Don't indulge envy. Makes you ugly. We know that. It comes down to this. Those who have been raised with Christ are called to live upright lives. We're called, to, we're, we're called to live just lives. That's a major theme of social existence in the Old Testament and the wider Scripture. But Christians, says Paul, we don't do, this isn't about keeping the rules. It's about being true to the presence of Christ in you. Like Jesus, we are to be upright people. We're to, we're to live just lives because His life is in us. As Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. Let's break this down a little bit more in conversation with an Old Testament scholar called Bruce Waltke. He used to teach here in Vancouver at Regent College, and he helped me to understand what Paul has in mind here. What's uh, the backdrop for everything Paul's saying right here in Romans 13? And what he says is this. He says, the vision that Paul is casting, the moral vision, of the vision of Christian life and existence, isn't just about private morality. It isn't a call just to you know, not commit adultery and go to church every Sunday. It's about radical love for the world. In the scriptures, an upright person is a person who is willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the community. And inversely, an unjust person is someone who is willing to disadvantage the community for the sake of personal gain. So when the Bible speaks of an upright life, it speaks of living in the constant recognition of the claims of humanity and community upon you. It's about knowing that it is unrighteous not to feed the poor when you have the power to do it. It is unrighteous not to check on your elderly neighbor, neighbors who are shut-ins. It is unrighteous to take so much profit out of your business that you have to pay your employees a pittance. That is not the way of God. Thank goodness. At least as we know God from His law, which is what Paul cites right here in verses 8 through 10. This is not, therefore, the way of those who have been raised with Christ. See, it comes to this. To be raised with Christ is to be a public-minded person, a just person, someone who works for peace and thriving in all of society, someone who is a humble servant to all peoples and all races and all the groups out there, not just the ones that agree with you. To be a human who is zealous for the common good. And I fear that in our culture we have lost any meaningful, meaty sense of what those words mean. Christian, but Christians are people who should be eager for that. Just like a drop of dye in a bowl of water, this is the passion that should cover how we use all of our time. That's the passion that should drive us to work. So let me connect these dots a bit further for you. Most Christians, and if you're like me, I worked in business for a number of years before I ended up here in the preacher's perch. Uh, most Christians seal off faith from work, right? Faith is a weekend thing, or it's a Tuesday night community group thing, right? If you go to a church like St. Peter's where you can't just do on Sundays, you have to do two things at least, right? So, but that's it. It's sealed off, right? But when it comes to our job, and if you're a student, count that as your job, we think that faithfulness to Christ is satisfied by not doing anything immoral or illegal. And that's what we conclude, and then we don't worry about it anymore. Well, that won't do. 
Not based on what Paul says here and elsewhere in the New Testament. When it comes to faith and work, our call is to integrate the inseparable. No more compartmentalizing. We're not to live fragmented lives. In short, we have to look more closely at what we do at work. We can't avoid going there. We have to, we have to reflect on what being raised with Christ means for our time at work, how it re-engineers the passion that drives us to work. How does this hit home? It definitely has implications in the realm of our motivation. So let's explore that. Motivation. Why do you work? Why do you take the job you have? For some of you, it may be money, and that's okay. We have to eat. But you can also love money. And people who love money, I think, don't always do a great job loving Vancouver. And the pursuit of money can and, and often is the real passion behind people's work. Sometimes that's how it is. For others, many of us millennials, we want, something, we want work that's emotionally satisfying. Right? And there's some truth in that, right? We do want to work and do things that line up with our skills and talents. There's some truth in that. But there is more, at least for those who have been raised with Christ. To quote John Calvin, who is my homeboy today. <laughs> we were created and redeemed to busy ourselves with labor for the common good. That's our passion. Not our only passion, but it is our bedrock passion because it is God's bedrock passion. Christians are people who are always asking, when at work am I helping people flourish physically, emotionally, relationally, so forth and so on, because that is the bottom line. That is the bottom line. To the extent that you get this, I believe and I know, in fact, that you can find contentment no matter what you do. And that type of contentment is more valuable than contentment in a job that's great and, and contentment in circumstances that are ideal. That type of contentment is like a hairdo that will hold firm even when it's raining outside and the wind is blowing, as they put it back where I'm from in South Carolina. It's sturdy hairdo, right? Doesn't matter what the circumstances are. That hair ain't moving. In our motivation for work, let me do one more application here on motivation. Christianity offers you an, inter an internal passion that's very handy in the face of what I call vocational upsets. Many of you will experience, some of you have experienced, some of you are experiencing right now, a certain measure of demoralization with regards to your work. And in the course of your career or careers, you encounter the phenomenon of dreams narrowing. You'll feel crestfallen. You had a vision of where you'd be in five years, but that seems to be shrinking. Professionally, things are not unfolding as you imagined. I wanted to do this, and I couldn't do it, and now I can't do it. That's the language of demoralization. And for many of us, it has been or will be familiar language. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. And in response to that demoralization, that experience, Christianity can remotivate you. Now, let me add, in many cases, being remotivated by God involves replacing bad or mediocre motivations for your work. I'm not going to go there now. That's for a pastoral conversation. But in terms of how Christianity can remotivate us when we're facing work-related demoralization, you know, it begins by recognizing that what God, what God thinks matters more than anyone else's position. What God thinks matters more. And therefore, our greatest passion is to use whatever God has given us to the best of our ability, in a matter that lines up with God's priorities. And in verses 8, 9, and 10 of Romans 13, that is loving and caring for the world. Let me quote John Calvin once more. He's aged since the last time I quote him. <laughs> All the blessings we enjoy are divine deposits committed to our trust on the condition that they should be dispensed for the benefit of our neighbors. 
To put it another way, having a good hand of cards is less important than playing the cards you have well. Before God, the role we have is less important than how we perform it. Do you see? Now notice here that this, this, these motives, this motive is not hugely contingent on external circumstances, right? And it is therefore a motive that can infuse passion even into the most mundane and trivial forms of work. It's going to give you a weatherproof hipster haircut. Stable and steady, no matter what the circumstances are. And we need that. Some of us need it desperately. Many of us, if you're like me, get excited about certain types of work. In my case, it's uh, one of the things I get most excited about is pastoral conversation, a meeting with someone whose heart's really laid bare, and I get to witness and watch with celebration the grace of God enter into that in a profound and personal and transformative way. Being part of that makes me deeply satisfied. Pressure washing's a close runner-up. That's the other thing I really like. But I can't do that, those things, all the time now, can I? Right? Because in my job, there's also scheduling. Got to do that. Emails. Got to do that. Financial documentations and systems development. I do that. Cleaning the office. If you've been to the office lately, you'll know I haven't been doing that. I'm supposed to. With all that type of work, there's not the same payoff. It's not as exciting. There's no applause. But God sees. And God knows that those, those tedious tasks support the well-being of this community as well as the lives that are touched by you all through it. And God is pleased because God is pleased when we do things we don't want to do but that are good for other people. That's how those who have been raised with Christ begin to think about their time. And that's a reality that offers its own passion. And we need that passion to give us emotional and psychological stability in the midst of work that will at times otherwise be arduous, banal, and with little applause. That's what we need right now. Some of you need it right now. Some of you are waking up to go to a job that you loathe. And when you look for other jobs on the Internet... They don't, there's not any that even seem that appealing. Jesus is offering us a lifeline. Will you take it? Let's move ahead. Glance now at verses 11 and 12, also from Romans chapter 13. This is what St. Paul says. Besides, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from, from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, these verses indicate that Christ's resurrection life also shapes the purposes that play out through our work. Paul's saying right here that God's planning to do something big. It's called salvation. And from the wider context of Scripture, we know that God's salvation will culminate in the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. This is coming. It's going to happen. All things made new. To be a Christian is to have an awareness and a hope about this, but it is also to be preparing for this. It's about living now in a way that comports with that future reality. Graduate students in the humanities provide a great illustration of what this looks like. If you wander around a humanities department, you'll notice that many of them, over the course of their doctoral studies, begin to bust out the tweed jackets right, in anticipation of their future as professors. They're getting ready. So should we, says Paul. This has huge implications for our work and for the purposes that we pursue therein. Huge implications. Some of you will know Paul Krugman. He's a professor at NYU, won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2008, just a bit too late. I like Krugman. He's a regular contributor to the New York Times, and in one of his articles, he made a very interesting observation. He said, in the 1990s, something happened with our attitudes towards money. And he said, it's analogous to the sexual revolution of the 1960s. 
Before the 1960s, culturally speaking, sex was not something you just picked up and did. It required a lot of care. There were taboos, there were expectations, there were boundaries to be honored. That was the broad cultural status quo in North America. But with the sexual revolution, it changed. And in like manner, in the 90s, says Crookman, something happened with our attitude towards money. It may have started on Wall Street in New York and the U.S., but you better believe it's fanned out. It used to be that you didn't brag about money. That type of gloating was considered vulgar. Debt was not considered a good thing. It was to be shunned. Those were the types of taboos that were out there. Thrift was a virtue. And thrift is connected to thriving, which is why they share the same cognate. It was a virtue. Right? People were careful with their, their savings and use of money. But then things changed. Things changed in the 90s. We became heirs of Oscar Wilde, who once quipped, anyone who lives within their means suffers from a lack of imagination. We have now entered more fully into the era of conspicuous consumption, a period where the flaunting of wealth has become commonplace and acceptable. It's symptomatic of what sociologists call affluenza. We see it all over our city. We just consider our automobiles. Where I grew up in rural South Carolina, a Lincoln Town Car or a Cadillac Sedan DeVille were the desired treats of retirement. But here in Vancouver, a Lamborghini is the reward for getting through your learner's stage. Not for all of us, of course. This shift, says Krugman, has mega implications for our work and for the purposes for which we work. In our context, and I don't think this is unfair to say, though I'm sure there are exceptions, the, the default baseline purposes for work are often money or status, getting ahead, making a name for yourself. Well, let me tell you, the Bible has a decidedly different view on the purpose of work, and that view is implicit right here in verses 11 and 12. These verses, as I noted earlier, anticipate a new creation. And that new creation, in turn, looks to recapture, but with even more glory, the original creation. The original creation. That's what's depicted in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And in that depiction, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, guess what? There's work. But it's work defined by a particular baseline purpose. The image in Genesis 1 and 2, some of you know this, the image for work is gardening. Right? That's, how, that's the image God used to convey the purpose for which he created human work. So let's ponder that. What does gardening involve? What does that image tell us? I think we can put it like this. A gardener is neither a park ranger nor an asphalt paver. So on the one hand, a gardener doesn't just walk around and look at things. That's what a park ranger does. I realize that's a bit of a stereotype. Sorry to any of you who are in forestry class right now at UBC. But on the other hand, a gardener doesn't just pave over things, asphalt everywhere. Gardening means something else. Is that someone calling to tell us what it means? Yeah. Oh, 12, 12. Let's <laughs> stop and pray just for a second. I'll pray for Alpha. Pray for that this church would grow, Lord, not just in numbers, but in depth. We pray that you'd help us to bring our faith into our work. Amen. Back to gardening. <laughs> what, does gardening what does gardening mean, right? A gardener is someone who makes a mess. They plow, they dig, they till, just like my dad used to make me do on the farm when I was growing up. He only paid me hamburgers. They do all that. They rearrange the material in order to produce food and flowers. And all that's about human flourishing. Food and flowers without sustenance, 
We don't live without beauty. We don't live. That is the purpose for which God vested our work. And that purpose harkens back to original creation in Genesis 1 and 2, but it also looks to embodying with anticipation new creation, where all things thrive. For salvation is here. The day is at hand, so therefore let us put on the armor of light. That's how Paul puts it. Now what's being said in these verses finds parallels all over the Bible. And the big point is this. It's a radical subversion of the default purposes otherwise at play in our work. Dorothy Sayers, a well-known Christian thinker and cultural critic, puts it well. She says this, The habit of thinking of work as something you do to make money or to get a position in society is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think otherwise. Did you hear that? It's time to reimagine the purpose for our work. At a primary level, at the baseline level, we don't work just to make bundles of money, just to get an identity, even just to feel good about ourselves. We work to promote human flourishing. We work not to make a big name for ourselves in this city, but to make the name of Christ great. And that name is synonymous with human well-being, which is precisely the core purpose of our work, human flourishing, cultural flourishing. That does not exclude, of course, other purposes that we would find in our work, but you better believe it relativizes them. So are your purposes in your work in the right order? We're here to, God's called us to play a part in pushing back the works of darkness and in ushering in the works of light and love. We're called to garden so that people can live and thrive. Now, what are some of the ramifications of this Christian and biblical perspective on work and its purpose? What does it look like more practically and concretely? Let me spell out a few things here for you. This is not an exhaustive list, just a few. Number one, it means that there is no menial work. The work that we don't always like to do, the work that we often outsource to immigrants, is not, in fact, menial or undignified. I mean, just consider cleaning. Consider the janitorial staff, the people who clean this space. If they did not do that, we would die. Germs would ravage us. Jungles would grow in the bathroom. I know that for a fact based on my junior year of college when I moved out of the dorm into my own apartment and there was no longer a cleaning lady. In God's eyes, the most menial work can have great honor. Regardless of your position, your work can participate in the resurrected life of Christ. And if you don't yet see this, then a Christian vision of work has not yet fully penetrated your heart. But to the degree that it does, you can do anything. Listen now. You can do anything with a certain amount of pride and purpose. Secondly, and this is for those who who are in more professional lines of work or who may be at some point, you do your business firstly not for the sake of wealth and status, but rather to, to promote human flourishing. Do you? Do you even think about that? I didn't think about it for many years when I worked in the marketplace. By the way, this does not mean finishing the workday and then saying, uh, in Jesus' name. That is not what that's not what we're talking about here. Consider the field of medicine. I come from a family of doctors in, in the American South and And they have been tracking shifts in the field of medicine over the past few decades, and it has created a certain amount of distress for them. For there are many, though not all, who go into the field of medicine these days, not to comfort and relieve human illness and suffering, but rather to bring themselves up in the world. And how different that is, for example, from my great-grandfather, Dr. S.T.R. Revel. That's his grave right there. I visited over Christmas. We do things like that in the South. He moved to a rural part of Georgia in 1907 to stave off a yellow fever epidemic. Not a prestigious post, left the city where his family had been established for a few hundred years, had a name and connections, left all that, moved down there, and then he stayed and spent the rest of his life there caring for those same people. And they often had chicken for supper because that's how people paid him. 
and his son-in-law, my uncle, Robert. He was a pediatrician, and 25 years ago, he gave up a partnership in a large and lucrative medical practice. He went out solo with three young children, and he did that because his medical practice refused to see Medicaid patients, those who were poor enough to qualify for the only public health insurance at that time. The practice wouldn't see him, so he left. Boy, am I proud of him. Boy, do I respect him. These are Christian people, and their choices reflect the purpose of work that is commensurate with being raised in Christ. They show what it means to have a faithful presence within whatever profession you're in. And, and these are examples that continue to challenge me, but also to inspire me. They point me to the Lord. Third application. You ask certain questions. In every field of human labor, there are dark things. There are idols. Things that undermine the God-given basis and purpose for our time at work. And Christians, in part, are people who are coming to discern and confront those things with intentionality, but also with wisdom. You do have to pick your battles. I recognize that. But you don't want to be checked out. So let's say you work in the finance industry. You need to start asking yourself whether the financial instruments that you use in that industry are regularly used in an exploitative way. Are you part of an institution in which that is happening? Don't want to think about that? You have to. You can't follow Jesus Christ and not ask questions like these. And if and when you find yourself in a position of influence, influence, many of you probably will in here, it's all the more important. Can you imagine what it would have been like if there was a high-level executive who was a serious Christian at the Enron Corporation. The outcome may have been different. What you do with your time at work does matter. Or what if you work in marketing, social media? Right? Maybe you need to ask yourself whether your ads and your promos are really advancing human flourishing, or are they promoting profit at the expense of human flourishing? Right? Are you part of a group that objectifies women in order to sell pizza? Pushing products people don't really need that just foster more unbridled consumerism and the relentless pursuit of cheap pleasure, perhaps at the expense of the earth, but certainly at the expense of human character. I don't know the answer to all these questions. All I know is that we need to be asking them. Because according to God, all human work has a shared common core purpose, and I think a lot of human work actually violates that purpose. For Christians, work has a unique bottom line because whoever knows the ways of God is called to imitate the works of God. That's the logic. Speaking of the works of God, what are the works of God? Or, or should I say, what is the work of God, the seminal work, the work that continues to labor after all of us and everyone in this city? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, St. Paul puts it like this. Some of you will know these beautiful words. Though Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and then being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Words from Philippians. And so what we see there is that the one in whom we are raised was himself lowered. He came into our world to work with us and especially for us. He didn't come as someone scrambling for status, here to reap profits. He came to do serious work, other-focused work, work of lasting benefit. That's how he used all of his time. And in that time, he became the perfect fulfillment of the passion and purpose for which God created human work, for flourishing. Because Jesus Christ opened the door to true and lasting human flourishing, and he's holding that door open right now. It's not a door to a leisurely life 
or to easy work, but it is a door to work that matters. Because when we are raised with Christ, our work is permeated with his passion and his purpose, and that transcends all the tyranny of petty concerns that otherwise dominate our time. There is joy in this. Much joy, because when you do it, you will feel God's goodness. That's what the church has been singing out for 2,000 years now. It's a message that improves the world. It's a message that makes you a better person and that makes your office a better place. So it's time to decide what you're going to do with the time you've been given. Will you be raised with Christ? That's the work that he's here to do.